Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk about creativity and resilience and how people build their lives and their careers. And this week, my guest is a very creative person. He's an actor. He's also a producer. Emerson Collins uh, produced the new movie, A Very Sorted Wedding, along with Del Shores, who wrote and directed it. Uh, Del and Emerson have been barnstorming the country with this movie, going to different cities every weekend for months, and it is now out on video on demand and DVDs for everyone to see. But it's quite a uh, undertaking to do the kind of push that they've done for it, and I love talking to Emerson about all of that. He also has really interesting stories about uh, spending part of his youth in Singapore and coming out and all kinds of fun things. So before I get to Emerson, though, I want to encourage you to check out my Patreon page. I just added a new reward, which is your very own copy of the Observation Deck, literally like a deck of cards. So um, yeah, that's right. We're stepping it up. So uh, check it out. I'm going to put a link on the Facebook page, but it's at patreon.com and you can just search Dennis Anyone and you can check it out. And um, I just posted a new Patreon episode for um, October. I post one a month and you can get in for as little as a dollar a month. And this one has, back in the day when I was doing magazine writing in the 90s and 2000s, I would sometimes get the people that I interviewed to do an outgoing message for my voicemail. Looking back, it was kind of inappropriate, but I remember just asking the people that I thought were cool and fun that I had kind of bonded with. So anyway, I have this medley of celebrity outgoing messages, and uh, they're all put together for you in a row. Um, You'll hear from, let's see, who's on there? Uh, Margaret Cho's on there, um, Juliana Margulies, Rebecca Romaine. Carrie Fisher, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Yasmin Bleeth from Baywatch, and then um, other stars pop in with messages. Alicia Silverstone leaves a really sweet message because she liked the article I wrote about her. So it's just basically celebrities either leaving me messages or doing my outgoing message. I call it Beep of 100 Stars. And to give you a little tease, this is the first um, message you would hear if you downloaded the Patreon episode this is Carrie Fisher, the late, great Carrie Fisher. Hi, this is Carrie Fisher. Um, Dennis can't come to the phone right now because we're in bed together talking about <laughs> everything. <laughs> you know we're not having sex because neither of us really enjoy it. But perhaps, who knows, this could be our Waterloo. At the beep. Do it. How great was that Carrie Fisher message? She was the best. Okay. You can you can hear a lot more messages um, on the Patreon episode that just went up, so go to patreon.com. I also get kind of dishy in this episode on Patreon where I talk about um, the Kevin Spacey thing and the Andy Cohen thing and the Paul Manafort thing, and I, I kind of weigh in in a way I don't often do on this podcast, so you can check that out. Um, thank you. I appreciate it. Also, I would love it if you like the Dennis Anyone Facebook page. And uh, you can go to the Dennis Anyone website.net and leave me a virtual tip if you like. Email me, all of that stuff. I love hearing from you guys. All right. So what else was I going to plug? Oh, I know. Um, if you're in Los Angeles, I am launching my new business, LifeCast by Dennis Hensley, with a big party on the 19th of November from 3 to 5.30 in the afternoon at The Village 
1125 McCadden uh, in Hollywood, the Gay and Lesbian Center, where we do the mismatch game. And uh, you're all invited. So if you would like to come, just shoot me an RSVP at Dennis at DennisHensley.com. I will also post the invitation on the Dennis Anyone Facebook page. Okay, that's all the business. It was good business. It's a lot of it. So uh, here, without any further ado, is Emerson Collins. Hey there, I'm coming to you from the West Hollywood apartment of my guest today, Emerson Collins. Hi there. Oh, hi. You're an actor. You're a producer. You wear many hats. Yes. And you wear them all very well. You're also the producer and you are one of the stars of the new film, A Very Sorted Wedding. I am. It's my baby. You've been barnstorming the country. Literally. You guys have, you and Del, Del Shores uh, is the writer-director, um, you guys like split up and hit different cities as this movie's rolling out. I've never seen a film release like this. It's Are not, you guys breaking the, the model? Are you doing something totally different? A, a little bit. It's sort of a weird combination of the best practices of what we've seen other people do. And then the rest of it, I think it's we're just willing to do things that other people aren't willing to do. Right. So we started this release March 10th, seven months ago, in Palm Springs with the world premiere. And I counted yesterday, because we just had our wide release to the whole world, uh, that we screened in 60 cities, uh, 60 combined theatrical weeks... 38 event screenings. Dell and I attended screenings in 44 cities, hosted and did Q&As at 72 screenings, and we partnered with 23 film festivals, 8 charities, 3 prides, 3 churches, and 2 LGBT organizations. You sound like Phil Cogan at the end of The Amazing Race, when they step onto the map and they're like, you know, Euchenna and Joyce, you've been to 14 continents, 78... You guys yes. are... The the, mile, the frequent flyer miles alone are mind-boggling. I mean, yes, this is absolutely true. And it sort of is, we did our really gay race around the country. You did your really gay race, and not always going together. Sometimes you guys was divide and conquer. Correct. And it sort of came out of, you know, the independent film world is continuously difficult. Every low-budget filmmaker will tell you, you know, getting a film finished is a Herculean feat. Right, and it's always but, changing. Yes, and then getting it out to anybody is, in, is a whole other process. It's like, you get, yay, I made my movie, and then you start a whole other adventure that is the publicity and promotion of an indie film. And because Sorted Lives has such a long history... We exist in sort of a strange place between LGBT filmmakers that are just excited to get anyone to see it, you know, at film festivals and get right. some exposure at all, and then indie films that have a big studio behind them that put them in, you know, that current model of here's 20 cities, we're doing a week, it's available on iTunes in 30 days, and then it's out to the world. Right. Well, we borrowed a lot of money to make this movie. You know, a lot of people believed in the marriage equality message of this movie, and my statement to them was, we are not going to screen anywhere that this film loses money. And almost every movie loses money in a theatrical release at the indie level. Because you can't, if you spend money on marketing, you can't make it up at a week in one theater right, in one downtown theater. Atlanta. Yeah. It's just not possible. So we didn't spend that kind of money. We did it all through social media uh, marketing and Facebook ads and the mailing list that we have. And then all of these organizations that we partnered with, their mailing lists. So in some cities, like in Fort Lauderdale, we ran in a theater for four weeks. But in, La- in Atlanta, we did four giant screenings and partnered with Out on Film, their film festival. And then we split the profit between the organization, the charity, or the LGBT center, and us. So that's how we 
ended up in so many places. So you would look at a place and say, okay, we want to, there's some interest here. How can we do this and make sure that we turn a profit? Yes. That's the, that's the bedrock yes. principle. Like, how do I make sure that no matter what, we don't lose money doing this? Right. And so we got cities that we have big, long histories with that theaters knew, yes, we'll book it. Fort Lauderdale, Palm Springs, in Dallas, we ran for six weeks. And then we had other markets where we know the film festival people, and they were like, we want to screen it. And I said, great, let's do a big VIP event. We'll bring cast members, uh, do Q&As, and you make more money, and we make more money that way. And then in other cities, we had organizations reach out and say, we want to do a screening. And so we looked at the calendar and said, well, these are the dates that are available. Right. And so that's how you do something like go to Houston on a Thursday night, Roanoke, Virginia on a Friday night, and then Seattle on a Saturday night, because that doesn't make any sense. Right. But it's what works. It's like the amazing race. I organized a book tour once and kind of did it myself. And it did have that kind of thing of like, well, I've got a couple days in the middle there. What if I used miles and I went up to Pittsburgh or, you know, like, yes. and you become sort of like, it becomes sort of a mania. Like, yeah, we can do it. Like, yes. like cramming as much in as you can. Are you exhausted? Uh, yes and no. I would, I, it's, I cannot stress enough what an incredibly rewarding experience it is as an artist to stand in the back of a theater while people laugh and cry and applaud at the work that you've done. You know, Dell and I are the great beneficiaries of these 32 actors, 150 crew members. And you know all the numbers. That you really there. know all the numbers. Well, it's, Is there an app for that or you just have it in your head? I, they just get crammed in and stuck. I mean, yeah. at this point, <laughs> having done 72 Q&As, there is not a question that someone can ask about this movie that I do not have a I know. fully prepared I'm sitting here thinking... For. There's nothing he hasn't been asked at this point. But, and I love that. You know, yeah. it's, it's been fun to figure out, like, oh, and now Dell and I have some of the answers, like, worked down to, like, comedy yeah. bits. Because one of the big ones is always, how'd you get Whoopi Goldberg? And we have, like, yeah. a five-minute story, and he tells the first half, and I tell the second half, and it ends right. with a big punchline, and it's yeah. always a big uh, reward. So now it's become, also, we're doing a two-man show at our bus and truck tour of a very sort of wedding across America. Yeah. You are doing it. It feels like that. Or you literally are. And so tired in the sense of like, you know, traveling is a lot, but it's the opposite of entertainers that show up and have to do a show. You know, we're flying across the country and then we push play on a movie and sit for an hour and 45 minutes and then answer some questions. It is not a hard job. Do you always sit and watch with them or do you go and... No, the real honest answer is I haven't watched the movie since before the March 10th premiere. I've not watched it all the way through. I watch different sections. I always listen at the beginning for the sound quality. There's a couple of early laughs that tell me exactly the temperature of that particular audience right. and then I always go in and watch the last 10 minutes uh, to the big the big finish to see the final church scene and the wedding but it's also during the screening I take my computer and that's right. when I'm like here's the so the meme for tomorrow for the city right. for that location and now let's make sure the movie and the posters are getting to one that's four cities from now so it's, it's a work time did you know how to do a lot of that before you embarked on this or was it a lot of it learning as you go about how to time social media how to create things and you know, did, was it a lot of on-the-job thing, or was this something that you knew how to do? This time is the culmination of having done a lot of things wrong right. in previous efforts. You know, I always say, you're always going to make mistakes, just make different ones. Right. This one is the reward of, you know, several... Dell and I have now produced three films together, a TV series together, a national tour, several plays. And so this one, at least making the movie part, we knew how to do that. And with Southern Baptist Sissies, we learned so much about the film festival circuit and social media marketing related to that. So it's also what taught me which markets are best for us, how to play it, how to target it. And so it is learning the timing and how far in advance to release things and what cities do people wait to the last minutes to buy tickets in. Uh, We've learned a lot of it. And so this is sort of the fruition of all the other times I've been frustrated and gone, oh, if I'd only known. Well, you're such an interesting person to me because you have the artistic creative side of your brain, but you also have super intelligent analytical 
cross every T, dot every I. Am I right? It is. How I, do they work together? I learned it's uh, it's one of the particular quirks, I guess, of who I am. I want an Emerson, that, is my point. I want an Emerson. It's, well, Dell jokes that, like, when I, when, if our relationship, working relationship ends, he's done. Cause when they start talking about, like, you know, um, artificial intelligence or robots or whatever, you're the one they should clone. I mean, there's... The a, Emerson 3000. A lot of us out there. It's And, <laughs> and it is learning to, well, in the producing side. And I think bringing, because in starting as an actor, right. I fell backwards into producing out of, I cannot get hired as an actor, but if I make work for myself, right. then we will. Because the, the first thing I did was produce a national tour, and neither Dell or I, or his now ex-husband, had ever done that. But I was like, I've been on stage in big theaters, we can figure this out. Which was the tour? The national tour of Southern Baptist Sissy's right. um, Sorted Lives. And then because of that, Dell put me in his contract to be a producer on Sort of Lives the Series. Right. I'd never been on a TV set. So at every point, I've sort of been swimming and learning fast enough before right. anyone figured out I had no idea what I was doing. But and you then, took to it, though. You you liked it. Yes. You liked that producing work. I like the producing work for projects that I'm passionate about. I right. definitely learned there's a certain kind of producer that loves like the problem solving and the puzzle fitting of it. I can do it well. I could not do it for hire, like, for somebody's project where it's just a paycheck. Like, right. my burning desire is not to be a producer. My burning desire is to show up on a great TV set for seven seasons as a series regular and say someone else's brilliant lines. And then in the summer, and on the hiatus, produce the films yeah. and things that I'm passionate about. Uh, but I did discover that it's learning to speak the different languages that each department and side of the spectrum needs. The, the best producers don't say what they want to say. They say it how that person needs to hear it to do the job you want them to do. So, of course, you talk to the actors differently than you talk to the crew, than you talk to the designers, um, to keep everyone motivated and on the same page and driving towards what you need. A lot of egotistical-oriented producers, you know, it's like, this is my thing, you do what I say. I just don't find that productive. I start every project standing up and saying, we're not curing cancer, no one gets to be an asshole. Like, right. you know, whatever the problem is, we'll fix it, and let's all do it well. Um, and that creates an accountability that makes everyone striving towards the same goal. And it's also part of working in low budget, where no one's getting paid enough, so right. everyone definitely also needs to be passionate about it. Yeah, if it ain't fun. Yeah, we, I didn't pay any of these actors what they're worth. We have right. genius people, right. and award-winning people, but they come because Dell's words are great, the characters are great, and then it's my job to make sure that everyone at least has a good time, even while we hurry. Alright, give us the Whoopi story, speaking of actors. So, you got Whoopi Goldberg. Yes, the backstory is, Caroline Ray and Whoopi Goldberg have been very good friends for a long time. Right. So when Sorted Lives, the series happened she showed it to Whoopi and she said who is this guy I love his stuff this is so fucked up so Caroline called Dell and she said I have someone that wants to talk to you now he thought it was a fan because the celebrities we work with are the kinds that like will talk to anybody take the photo with anybody right. tell somebody's mom happy birthday and Whoopi gets on the phone and says hey Dell it's Whoopi how'd you get so fucked up and he was like, well, my dad was a Southern Baptist preacher, and she was like, ooh, that's all you gotta say. You do a pretty good whoopee, by the way. Well, it's me doing Dell doing whoopee. Okay. Like I said, 72 Q&As. This is my yeah. version of his version of I the story. It. Okay. Um, and so she wanted to be in the second season. She said, I can't do a lot of episodes, but give me, you know, something fun. So he wrote her to be in the mental institution as Caroline Ray's character, Nolita's roommate. Right. Well, the second season never happened. And so several years later, uh, now four, three or four years ago... 
Caroline was having lunch with Whoopi and said, Dell's written a sequel to Sorted Lives. And Whoopi said, well, he put me in it, right? And Caroline Ray said, absolutely. He wrote you a great part. She got in the cab and called Dell and said, you got to write Whoopi a wall. Right. You gotta, yeah. And so I said, I was like, look, you've got to make it a cameo. Because as the pessimistic producer, right. he thinks everything will happen faster and easier. And it's my job to be like, I think it will never happen. We'll never have enough money. Right. Balance each other out. I said, it won't happen. So it needs to be a role that we can put somebody else in at the last minute. Right. So he wrote this great cameo. And Senators loved the script. Great. So we get to Canada because we shot this movie in 15 days, 11 and a half days in Canada, three and a half days in Dallas. And I put the schedule together, sent Whoopi's team and said, we'd like to do the wedding on this day. Are you, is she available? They said, unfortunately she's not, which is what I expected. Right. I said, well, here's the entire schedule. Is she available at any point in this process? And they said, yes, she's available this one Friday night from 6 PM to midnight. I was like, we'll make it work. Uh, and because she doesn't fly. Right. So she got in her bus, a very, very, very nice bus. Yeah. In New York at 1230 on a Thursday, right after shooting The View, and drove 27 hours to arrive in our base camp in Winnipeg at 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon. I was thrilled and mildly terrified because that morning we hadn't heard from them. I was like, she's yeah. somewhere between New York and here. Oh my gosh. Uh, so we made Caroline get on the bus and she's like, come on. We get on the bus and Whoopi was like, I don't know where I am, but I'm so excited to be here. Adele, literally, you could see it was very cute that we were so excited. And he said, you know, you get it. It's a sermon. You're an ally. Feel free to make it your own. Do whatever you want with the script. And she said, and I love telling this because it's why so many brilliant actors come to do our low budget work. She said, well, what you wrote in the script was rather brilliant. How about I just say that? I know at 97%. Right. And she was amazing. We had her for five hours. I think the first complete exhale I took in the entire production of this movie was after we got the first entire wide shot of Whoopi's sermon. Because I thought, okay, we can end this movie. Right. And so she was lovely. Photos with the crew and the cast and delightful with everyone. And we get to the end of the evening. And so Del and I are walking her back to her bus. And she said, you know, I'm still not really sure where I am. I just get on the bus. I go to the back, fall asleep, and I get off when they tell me that I'm there. And I said, rather bravely, looking back, you know, it's so interesting. Your people spent so many years working to get to the front of the bus. Right. And she How said, she go? How oh, she go honey, the difference is now I own the bus. Right. Thank you. So that's our big story. You the, had a little clip. You ripped together. A giant, literally. Yeah. I, like, it will be in my book. It will be, like, yeah. that this skinny white homo, like, made right. this joke about black people to right. one of the great icons of comedy. And she, like received it from me and bantered back with she like gave the you best a yes, she yes and possible line I was like thank you I will remember this moment forever what's the bus like is it like literally the Ritz Carlton of buses yes and apparently as we looked, learned this was the backup bus like the fir- the main bus was like in the shop for something does she own it or does she oh yeah okay yeah wow yep. I love that she's just on a bus yeah Torn across America. That's amazing. And it's, and it, you know, and it's so special. When we get to the moment where she arrives in the movie, in the screenings, right. probably 90% of the time, there's literally applause and cheers just that she arrived in the movie. You yeah. know, it's like we have all these big stars, Leslie and Carolyn and Bonnie and Dale Dickey and like, but someone like that, like that level of that length of being an icon. Yeah, she's iconic. It's really special. That's cool. Yeah. That makes me like her a lot. Yeah. Um, Traveling around the country when I was doing my book tour, I always loved the moment when I got through security before I got on the plane. Yes. Like, there's something about, I made it, okay. I love that moment. What's, when you're running around the country, when are your favorite moments? 
Um, weirdly, I like that. I, I lived overseas. I lived in Singapore for the last two years of high school. So airports, like I've done lots of them all, all right. around the world starting in adolescence. Wow, and Singapore. Yes. Okay. That kid that got caned went to my high school before I went there. But That might be the name of this podcast. That, people... that kid that got caned went mm-hmm. to my high school. Mm-hmm. But I did wow. not know him. Okay. Um, but, it, but that was a big life-changing experience that affected a lot of who yeah. I am, of course. But I love that mo- app getting into airports. And now with TSA pre-check, like you just roll on, get right, right. through. You've but got- I'm going to get there early person. Right. So you don't have to stress. Like angry people at airports, I'm like, they're not going to go faster because you're upset. Right. So like go early enough that it doesn't matter what happens. Right. Then sit on the computer and play. And Dell and I do Facebook Live exactly. videos. Uh, my favorite moment, this is so sad. No matter where we are, the first thing I do when we check into the hotel is check the Starbucks app for where the nearest Starbucks is. Yes. Because I, I have it. found that in travel, it's, I literally only have one thing, but it's my one Starbucks drink. It's like, that is my like familiarity feeling. Right. So no matter where I am, like start the day that way and whatever is happening today, we're off and running. It's like your blanket for Linus. So much so that it's possible that in one place it was like over a mile away and I was running a little late and I definitely Ubered to the Starbucks yeah. and back. You needed to. It was important. You have your needs. What's your drink? Uh, a venti ice white chocolate mocha. It's like dessert in a cup. Yeah. Like the Starbucks that's two blocks away from my apartment where we're doing this right now. I hit the order and walk out the door and in the time it takes me to get the two blocks, it's ready. And I know them all. So it's like a little piece of home wherever I am. You're amazing. Other people need like caviar. I read M&M's and I'm like, I just need a Starbucks. Wow. Why do you and Dell work together? Why does it click? Um, it works really well because the balance of, we're both definitely forward-leaning energy people. We're passionate about a lot of the same subjects. And that, I think, starts the core. Um, we're both word-oriented and super talky, chatty people. Right. And then we balance by, I describe it as, he looks at the forest and I make sure all the trees are where they're supposed to be. Now, I, we take his vision of a piece um, and then I make sure all of the pieces yeah. uh, land where they're supposed to along the way. And that's our deal now is, you know, you write me a great role and I'll make your movie for you. That's the role that I get to do with this. I might, I would never have been seen for right. in the first place. And it's been really rewarding to have people compare this sort of mask for mask serial killer that I play in this Bonnie and Clyde thing with right. Leslie Jordan to what I did in Southern Baptist Sissies and be able to see the range of what I can do as an actor yeah. in a way that nobody would have ever handed to me. At, through auditioning. When it came time to do your performance, did you kind of have to... I need, to, I need to put on my actor hat now. I need to not think about... How did you sort of make sure that you were where you needed to be to, to give the performance and not dealing with a million things? Because we did this with Southern Baptist Sissies, where I was literally the lead of the, of, yeah. the, of the play movie, I learned in that one. And that one, I was over-prepared because I memorized and memorized the play so that no matter what was happening, you could snap right. your fingers and I could do the entire role. Yeah. So the words would just roll out. Yeah. Um, and so the same thing with this one. I had the script in advance. So even before we went to Canada, like I knew all of my role, like done. And we shot all of mine in Dallas. So we had fewer actors there. So in Canada, I could just focus on producing the movie. And then by the time we got to Dallas, um, and I knew it was my scenes, we shot all of my scenes in two days. And there's the giant monologue that's in the middle of the movie. And I just drilled it and drilled it and drilled it. Literally right before we're doing it, I'm, you know, dealing with like payroll, like paying the motel right. that we're shooting at. And then like Putting action. Fires. And then you just set it all down and sit into the character and off you go. There you go. You're, the subplot that you're a part of could have easily not worked because it's kind of surprising and different for that world. Um, but it totally works. But were you or Dell kind of like, is this thing going to, this kind of goes into a different direction? I, you know, the weird self-esteem thing I think that many actors share, uh, the actor part of me was a little bit worried that we're going to land at this place in the middle of the movie and I'm going to tell this weird and 
very definitely dramatic story for three minutes in the middle of, you know, this high comedy that we've come right. to know and love. And is that going to work? And it sort of took me trusting Dell in right. that moment in the screams like, it does. It's a, you know, it's a breath that's necessary. Uh, it's with Leslie. And do- it, there's a little bit of like, and no matter what, we can always cut the monologue down. And, right. and, you know, and just play a lot more of Leslie, basically, if your performance doesn't work. And it's been really, really rewarding for people to comment on enjoying how much they sort of fell in love with this serial killer, which is awkward. Yeah. And that it does sort of serve as a breath between the, the first half of the movie and then the second as we sort of head for the giant series of climaxes that occurs. So, uh, giant I, series I, of climaxes. Usually this is the part where I would let Dell give the compliments yeah. about my performance so that right. I didn't have to say them. But I'm really proud of the work that I did. And I think in the movie that it does. It, play, it serves as I a think nice you're great in it. respite. Um, that gives us the the air we need to then launch towards the frenetic finale. Your scenes are primarily with Leslie Jordan. What's, yes. What was it like working with him? Well, I have the fortunate benefit of, like, now we've been working together for a decade. Right. When I moved here to do Southern Baptist Sissies, he was in it. And at that point, I didn't have any scenes with him, which was good, because it was like, you're a genius, and I'm mildly terrified. But now, you know, he lives eight blocks from here, and he drives right. by in his convertible and yells, Hey, Sissy! Out the window at me. Do you literally hear it sometimes? Liter- no, literally, like, he'll see me, and that's his response. Hey, Sissy! Right. Um, and so, being good friends now made it something I could be really excited about. But definitely knowing I have to fully form this character and be really prepared with my with what I'm going to do in the scene, or he'll walk away f- with it from me. Right. You know, there will be... No one will remember I was in it. He's a genius. Does he... Improvise much? No, Dell. The sort of the brilliance of Dell's writing is that he writes the way real people talk. You don't right. finish sentences. You get distracted for a minute, and then you pick it up. You know, three lines later, that people it often ask, like it be, "Is it yeah. ad libbed?" No. On the rarest of occasions, he'll twist something or he'll ad lib something extra. Uh, Whoopi has one great ad lib in the movie where she literally forgot the character's name that led to one of the great jokes near the end of the film. Um, and Leslie will often do punch up writing with Dell. They've they've partner worked right. together. Uh, on scripts before, but no, it's Dell writes it and then hands it to brilliant comedians and they just make it feel like, oh, I just made that up right now. There you go. Have you and Dell ever gotten in a fight? Uh, it's so rare. It's just not the, it's just not who either of us are. I'm not a, you know, yell and screamy person. Right. Uh, no, like once very early in our time together, I was really late, um, for, uh, what we were doing in Palm Springs, we were doing all the plays there, and I was out to like five in the morning, and I was half an hour late, and definitely got yelled at. Uh, but since you were tearing shit up, yes, yeah, I was living my life. You were living I was your like, life. I just been in California for eight months. Yes, it was Palm Springs. Yes, uh, I was up at a house. Yeah, um, and then Gary Manilow was. Oops, <laughs> not, no, not never mind. Nah. he is a big fan of the People's Couch, though. And oh, that's called good it to the know. Couch Potatoes, which is very sweet. Emerson is on the People's Couch, which we'll get to that, and. So, but no, and since we, uh, you know, it's funny because I started basically doing assistant work and then producing for him and then producing with him. And then we started this company together and uh, well, we have a great respect. We definitely disagree. You know, we'll yeah. have heated discussions about what do we think uh, about this or should we do this? But no, like there's, I, I don't function that way. You know, I, I don't, just don't see any sense to like screaming and yelling or whatever. I don't think that doesn't do anything for me as a human being. And if I get up there, I've always said, if I yell, like, it's world ending. Yeah. You know, there are people that get hot and they're blustery. I'm just yeah. not the way. I tend to go ice cold. Right. And no, we know each other super well. And there's a, we both have flaws that we know. You know, when you spend this much time together, I'm patronizing sometimes. He is a mile a minute extrovert, you know. That, right. That, but you learn to accept those things about the people that you love. And instead of continuing to have arguments about them, you go, that's who you are. I accept that for you in my life. I, I try to do that, you know, with everybody that I keep in my life. And if people have something that you cannot accept about them, don't keep them in your life. You know, if you're always having to not say something to somebody 
that's how you lead to those weird explosive fights, right? It's like, yeah, it's I want to say, I want to say, I want to say, and then this thing happened, and here's all of this! Right. If you can't, I say, say it when it's annoying, not when it makes you angry. Yeah. You're like, I didn't like that you did that today. Oh, okay, don't do it again. The end. So, if only life were that easy. I, no, and of course it's not perfect, <laughs> but I do it, like, I only keep the people in my life where we can say those kind of things. Yeah, that's a good thing. And work with those people. Now, you've experienced sorted life Sorted Lives fans all over the place. Yes. Is there something that links them, traits, types, uh, a certain kind of spirit that they all have? Is there something that that they all sort of have? It's funny. It sort of goes with what I was just saying, actually. There's sort of a joyful acceptance of people, warts and all, that is what sort of the common thread in Sorted Lives fans. And it's, you know, it's a a show and a movie and a play all about, like, the ridiculous foibles of larger-than-life people, but that everybody knows... And we have found that, like, we had lesbians in New Jersey talking about this, just like my family. We don't have those accents, ours sound different, right. but it's the same. That, that the super fans are people that can acknowledge, that's me, or that's my mom, or that's my aunt. And if you can see that about people around you, warts and all, it sort of makes you sort of a joyful thing. That's what I find, that everybody's like, if you can laugh about yourself and laugh about right. your own flaws and the flaws of the people you love, this is something for you. Right. When you go to those things, do you get recognized when you're out and about in the town, maybe before the screening or or the next day or whatever? I get, yes, it's sorted stuff I definitely do now. I used to, at airports anywhere, because of the people's couch, right. have hilarious and wonderful conversations with people. But I used to have a very uh, controversial haircut that was very distinctive, that was sort of like surfer in the front and like party in the back. It was a literally like a gay mullet, sort of a gullet right. is what I called it. Sure. Because it was so distinctive, I was instantly recognizable. People would right. see me. I'd be out with Blake and Scott. They'd notice me and then realize it was all three of us. Right. Since I shaved my head for this mask for mask role, it happens a yeah. little less. Um, Blake and Scott are your cohorts on Bravo's The People's Couch. Yes. Um, how many seasons have you guys done of that? We did four. 57 episodes of is us it watching done? TV. It is done. It is done. It is done. What was that like? Um, in terms of your life, did it was it a, did it feel like a job or was it just like they come once in a while and, and we have fun? Like both. Or right. I found because like when it first started, we were raising the money to make a very like Dell was writing a very sort of wedding. I had right. nothing to do. We're like and it was like oh my gosh, this is so fun. Like let's just silly and talk nonsense about television. And I am definitely a TV holic. Like my default personal time is like binge watching TV, watching yeah. junk, great stuff. I watch it all. What's on your DVR right now that you're never going to watch, but you're probably not going to delete either. Um, actually, I'm going to watch everything on my DVR. Wow, you're like, that person. I really am. I'm a, like, That's amazing. I feel like recently, oh, I gave up on, what was the the new Vanessa Williams show that they did the this down, summer? The, the daytime. daytime. The daytime. Yeah. Yeah, I watched the first couple, but like, I, like, at the end of the summer, as we still had 20 more cities to go, I was like, the DVR's full and Fall TV's coming back and I'll just have to binge watch it later. So yeah. I did delete six of those. That's okay. That I hadn't finished, but I will you watch You watched two more than I did. I will watch the rest of it. You will. You, yeah. You're, you're completist. I, I, yes. I'm a, yeah. this year, in between, I've been watching Supernatural, the entire series oh from God. the beginning. Oh my God, you're I kidding, there's 13 years of that I'm shit. in January, and I'm in season 11 right now. Oh my gosh. The, you it's should my, like, get a prize night. for that. But so definitely the People's Couch was definitely okay. suited to me. Right. And, uh, and it was a blast. At the beginning, there was a little bit like, I, like I'm trying to be an actor. Like, I, that is actually what I do. Right. This could ruin everything. Like, right. Because when you explain it to people, you say, you're going to watch people watch TV. It sounds like as a snobby elitist, something I'd be like, that's the end of civilization. Right. I'm an actor. 
we don't have enough scripted television. Reality television's ruining everything. Right. I don't say that because I love reality TV and right. I don't think it's in competition with good but scripted. People would think you but were yes. Kardashian adjacent. But the kind of fans that we've encountered all across the country are really great, fun, smart, interesting people that are like, hey, I don't want to interrupt your night. I just want to say love it so much. We found this new TV show because of you. It's totally the way we watch TV. And that they loved that when they totally agreed with us and when they totally disagreed with us. Because it really is kind of the way you watch TV with friends. Right. You don't talk through it quite as much as we do for this, probably, because right. if we really talk that much, I'd be like, shut up, or I'm going to punch you in the face. Yeah. Um, but and Did so, you guys always sit in the same order? We did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, Scott was the Beyonce. Right. And Blake was the Kelly, and I was like, poor Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Do How much went into picking your outfits for every episode? Um, probably more for us than is appropriate. <laughs> well, probably in this order. Like, Scott and me and then Blake. Yeah. Because Blake was, has been on TV since he was six years old. Right. He's definitely, like, the old queen of the bunch. You know, like, I've got my wine. Like, if, I've, like, if I have something to say, I'll say it. If not, right. I'll drink my wine. And, like, this is what I wore. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I want to be cute. I'm still trying to be an actor. So. Right. But after a while, like, you're also sitting on a couch for a really long time. So, like, be cute, but be comfortable. And Scott must have worn... 8,000 pairs of socks. Like, he has the most adorable socks. And fans became obsessed with paying attention literally to the socks that Scott was wearing. I keep thinking I want to raise my sock game, yeah. but I never do. No. I was no. always like, no. I was like, I'm going to always wear black socks to go with everything. Yes. Yeah. Play it safe. Yes. Where's the weirdest place you've been recognized for that? Um, a bathroom. Like, bathrooms yeah. is just weird. Like, it's weird to be holding your penis and have someone else be holding theirs and be like, right. oh, you were on the people's couch. But like, yes. And in 30 seconds, this will be a lot less weird. Now, did you feel like a full-fledged Bravo celebrity? No. We're like the Z-list of Bravo celebrities. Like, because there's like 23 of us. Yeah. No. We're like way down the totem pole. Like, thrilled to be a part of the Bravo family. They were lovely, and I'm a housewife's junkie, and I watched them all. Did you get invited to any special Bravo things? No. Because I used to do a blog for them, and I got to go to the Project Runway fashion <gasps> show. Ooh. The year that yes. uh, Jeffrey... Sibelia Yes. Uh, is that a guy? Yeah, yeah. Person? He was from LA. Yeah, 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 the yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I got to go and it That's was so exciting. Uli was there. Yes. Uh, Uli and, with and all her Laura little Laura was there. Uh, yes. What about Hot Daniel from season two? Daniel Vosovic. You want to hear this crazy story about Daniel Vosovic? Yes. When I was in that Bravo kind of world, I was like D-list too because I was doing a blog or whatever. Um, I met him at a thing and... He had a, was going to invite us to a party or whatever, and he texted me, but I didn't know about getting texts yet. I hadn't learned how to text yet. Yeah. So the reason I didn't know about the, the, the reason Daniel didn't follow through or let me down is because I didn't know that he had sent me a text because I didn't know about texting. So when That's I think fair. of Daniel Vosovic, I, I always think, think about learning to text. My one good text story is that I do have the distinction of having received the first text message that Delta Burke ever sent. Holy <laughs> shit, I shouldn't have been drinking when you said that. Right? Like, that's a good that's one. That's really good. I know, thanks what to Del. say? I have all these great stories with what all was... these iconic women. Literally, honey, this is my first, I've never done a text, I'm on my way. We were doing the national tour of Sissies right. and Sorted Lives, and she was playing the moms in Southern Baptist Sissies. And so, we, but we were in Palm Springs, and she was going to come down in a car, and I was like, this show, like, we're ready to start rehearsal, are you almost here? And she was like, this, I've never done this before, this is my first text, almost there. It was very exciting at the time. That's good. Was she almost there? Or yeah, did she no, do that she thing was. where you no. act like you're parking? No, you're really she was super great, super low-key. Like, good. she was lovely. 
So you would go around the country and do the shows? Yes. How long would you stay in any one place? We would do, like, four shows in a weekend. Two, Boom, two of Sorted and two of Sissies, yeah. We would load in a show, tech one in the morning, tech one in the evening, and do one the next night. Like, it totally impossible. Like, you should never do this. It only worked because our lighting designer could run the show without writing cues. Like, she was this phenomenally gifted, How big is your company that was traveling? Like, 40? Like, we have, like, 30-some-odd actors, and we're, like, bouncing around into random cities. Really, we only did it because we didn't know better. If we'd known better, I would have been like, don't do that. You will, like, we've got two of our crew guys that's just, there's a team of four of us and Dell driving this giant truck with a set around the country and flying 30 actors in. And you were putting on a show. Like, literally. Let's put on a show. Um, and the end of The People's Couch, by the end of the fourth season of The People's Couch, I was producing this movie and shooting the final season of The People's Couch at the same time. So I was in pre-production in Canada five days a week, flying home to LA to shoot with the boys on Friday and Saturday and fly back to Canada on Sunday. And literally the shoot week of the movie, the day all of the hospital scenes shot, was the sixth shoot day of that week. I flew home that day, was sitting on the couch, shooting the people's couch, and also checking in with our line producer on, like, how are we doing on the schedule to shoot all that night and then fly back in the morning. Because you couldn't miss the couch. Well, it's like, I didn't want to, you know? It was a big and fun special thing. We were in a little less of that last part of the season because we couldn't watch as many shows because I couldn't do as many... Uh, as many, but we wanted to keep doing it until the end. Did you have to watch a lot of... Were they to say, this is what we're going to talk about, make sure you watch it? No, we'd show up and be like, this is what we're watching today, and fortunately, because I watch so much television, right. I was often used to like introduce the show, because like Blake's like, what is this? And Scott's like, I don't... If it's you know not Housewives and stuff, he, does, he watches like the Golden Girls, you know, right. and Judy Garland. He like, can't let it should. go. He needs to step into the present day. Like, they're like Judy Barbara gays, and I'm a Britney Whitney gay. Thank you. Like, I, I love I, them. Yeah. I mean, I did buy and Cellar and learned all there is to know about Barbara Streisand. Right. Uh, but I'm still a Britney Whitney gay. Like, those, that's my era. Where did you do buy and Cellar? I did the first uh, regional theater production in Palm Springs. Yeah. Uh, our director, Larry Rabin, is wonderful. And he and uh, Chuck, that runs Coyote Stageworks, know Jonathan Tolan's really well. And right. so they were like, we want to do it. He's like, okay. Um, so I did it there, and then the Laguna Beach Playhouse came to see it, and we're like, oh, well, let's put it on our season next year. So I did it twice. Did it in Palm Springs and Laguna Beach. What was the most fun thing about doing that show? It's the one with the guy that works in the mall in Barbara Streisand. Yes, the Michael Yuri originated yeah. and did literally all over the world. Um, the, that was the most fascinating experience as an actor. To have the confidence to walk out onto a shit, onto a stage, and say, for the next 100 minutes, it's me, a piano bench, and a chair... And that's enough. You know, you do shows and you're like, oh, we were all in this together. Even if you're like a huge leading role, it's like, but you know, this person maybe wasn't great. If the audience doesn't like it, it's like, oh, we didn't have a great time tonight. This is like, it's just me. Like walking out for that first night was the first time to go, I have to really believe that as an actor, like I'm enough because I'm going to tell this entire story by myself and love it or hate it. At the end of the night, you had a good time or didn't because of just me. So it was a, a really great learning experience of what it means to only be in the moment, to like tell each piece of the story bit by bit, and whatever happens, to let it go, because you're still talking. I what was your it. favorite moment of that show to play? I mean, I've got to be honest, like the curtain call. <laughs> like, right. There, no, I mean, like, uh, no, I loved it. There's, there's, a, a, the, there's a scene where, where the character and Barbara rehearse Gypsy together, yeah. and I loved doing that. You combine, like, musical theater and Barbara Streisand and this, like, gay boy working in her basement. So, you right. know, there's such, 
It's why it's become the sort of tour de force, like if you're a gay male actor between 25 I'm and 40 I'm telling you, so many cool guys that I know have gotten to do that in different parts well, of the country. We did this year at the Drama Desk Awards. Michael, uh, Michael hosted it, and Jonathan Tollins uh, wrote it this year. And so they wrote all of us that have done it anywhere in the country and said, if you happen to be in New York, uh, we want to try this bit... Uh, with all of you guys. So if you're here or can be here, let us know. We're going to do it. Well, because of our screening schedule, I was able to be there. I was going to be in New York, and I was like, I'm available. So they introduced the best solo performance category by saying, the star of Byron Seller, and 18 of us walked out onto the stage together. That's amazing. Who have all played the same role, and Michael talked about, you know, if you're doing a one-person show, you join a very unique club of other people that have shared that experience. And then, one by one, we all, you know, introduced a piece of the award. But it was really cool to stand and say, this is such a unique experience, and each of us have had it. Uh, across the country and I knew a few of them and others I didn't and it was like a really special thing and Michael's like sort of the grand dame right. of this very special club he originated really the role yeah and was and is one of the most lovely human beings and a big sort of lives fan uh, he told us when he did our radio show and he like as, was so sweet to literally everyone and yeah. such a generous human being and so crazy talented now you and Del uh, do a radio show are you still doing it? We're not. It was literally the thing that we started doing t- while we were raising the money for the show. So right. like we needed an outlet that is something besides begging people for money. And right. we both rant and rave. So for three and a half years, we did an hour of here's what's happening in the LGBT news this Yeah, week. it was really good. And it was really fun yeah. to tell a wide range of stories. You know, politics, we were doing it all through the Supreme Court decision, right. through all of the religious freedom backlash, all of the Kim Davis stuff. It taught me a lot, too. It was during a time period where I realized how much I didn't know about trans people and experiences, right. and we started a segment specifically about trans news, um, and so it was really fun, and then tell ridiculous stories, like from Queerty, about, you know, some gay guy, you know, that didn't that was at some party and took, like, 50 loads or something crazy. Like, fun and silly yeah, from exactly. to run the full spectrum of, like, all the news there is about our community, and, um, and it was fun to hear how many people, you know, they have regular jobs, that they're like, I don't have time to pay attention to the news all week, and it was a fun way to catch up with what's happening. Yeah, and you guys were great together and you were always I, you always had your shit together you always have your shit together I, li- I, I, I like to at least be informed and I'm interested in a lot of stuff I was definitely right. the kid like reading books my parents I have to be in a small group of kids that my parents would come in and tell me to stop reading by the nightlight when we go on vacations to like stop reading a book in the back seat and like look out the window and enjoy the scenery right. I was definitely that kid I find lots of stuff interesting and you know and I'm, I want to be knowledgeable yeah. and so I do my research I try not to speak about stuff that I don't know about Right. I feel like that should be a common thing, but I But it's not. It That's what LA's built on. In our and our social media culture oh, has yeah. taught people that if you have an opinion, it's valid oh, and you should yes. say it. And it's just as equal to someone who's an expert on a subject because right. you're both saying it on the same platform. And then everyone gets to rate the opinions and the reaction yeah. and yeah. feel like how you did with your reaction. Yes. It's a lot. It's a whole lot. So much. Talk to me about Singapore. It was the most fascinating thing. You know, I grew up as a skinny kid with glasses and braces who didn't play football in suburban Houston, Texas, which basically meant I wasn't a person. And so when I was 16, uh, my dad worked for a French uh, company out of Paris, opening all their offices in Asia. So he moved all of us to Singapore while he bounced around Asia. So I moved from suburban Houston... Uh, to Singapore, I went to school with kids from literally all over the world. And and even the American ones, lots of them had lived all over the world. You know, it was a, a significantly multi-ethnic community. 
And at 16, I was young enough for it to affect a lot of my worldview, but old enough to appreciate the experience. You know, in Houston, it was like, oh, that's a Catholic person, so they're way different from us. You know, right. like, we're Baptists, and they might be going to hell. Right. And, you know, and to go to school in Singapore with kids that grew up in Buddhist cultures, that grew up in Hindu cultures, with a fundamentally different view of literally the whole world, taught me so much more about how to appreciate a perspective that's completely opposite yours and an equally valid experience, you know, to not judge the point of view. And it in, it allowed me to sort of grow and flower a lot because the range of diversity was so much wider that being a smart kid that was the lead in the musical, suddenly, like, some of the popular kids wanted me to go out with them, and I was like, you know, I want the lead in the musical. Right. They were like, yeah, but that means you're good at what you do. So our hierarchy was at least based on, like, the value being system was the different. best at something, yeah. not just the best at football. Right. It wasn't Friday Night Lights. We literally didn't have It was Friday Night Footlights. Yes. I had a bunch of friends from Baylor and from Dallas that were right. on Friday Night Lights, and yeah. it took me forever to watch the show, because they, they had been on it for, like, three seasons, yeah. and I was like, what am I going to do with the show about football? Yeah. And it turned out to be this genius show about television, and Connie Britton and Kyle Chandler is one of the best marriages in the history of television. Yeah. But That's I one of the shows that I'm always going to wish that I had watched that I didn't watch. And somebody was like, why don't you go yeah, audition? I was like, wire. what am I going to play, the kicker? Yeah. On this football team? Like, I think uh, you could. One, no, I would have to be the obviously gay guy that was the, like, subplot with the closeted gay football player. Right. You know, like, I wouldn't be the football player. I'd be the one from the drama club. Right. Or, like, the local community college, like, choreographer. Right. That was, like, helping him out of the closet. Yeah. That I, been, that, I, that I would, would watch that. Place. That's the stereotype place that the industry thinks that I should fit. Yeah. Right. How frustrating is it to try to audition for things and find your way in the Hollywood uh, thing? And You know, I always hesitate to think, like, that anybody's, like, journey is harder than anybody else's. Like, right. Because to getting cast in something wonderful is, like, getting lightning struck no matter who you are or right. what you are. Certainly at times, I, I have one entertaining story. Years ago, there was a pilot being auditioned for... That was written for four girls. At the last minute, they changed one of the girl characters to be a gay guy. Right. As, like, the fourth in this little group. They did not rewrite any of the dialogue for this character. They just right. changed the name. Like, Brianna to Brian, and off right. you go. And so, they're seeing people, and they're like, everybody's reading it too gay. And I was like, okay. I get the sides, and instead of like, girl, I'll meet you at the food court after I get my mani-pedi. Like, that guy. Yeah. Somebody, yes, he's, and, and you're talking about, like, end of high school, early college, there is a per- that that person in real life is likely to speak a certain way, right? And so, and then someone suggested me for the role, and the casting director said, "Who I'd only ever had a five minute phone conversation with? I think Emerson is too gay for this character." And then I read the sides, and I was like, "Now look, I am not your mask for mask fantasy. A big part of letting go of my Texas upbringing was letting go of the need to fall to be that specific kind of masculine to worry about to stop doing that thing I did at frat parties in high school. You know, where right. I let the, the some of the bass come into my voice and sit down right. in it, and also some of ironically what I use for the character in a very sort of right. way came in handy. Um, but I let go of a lot of that. So yeah, sometimes taffeta flies out of my mouth when I talk. But like on the scale of one to Richard Simmons, like you know, I'm like." In maybe on the gayer end, but not Leslie Jordan. Right. So it was like, so to say that I'm too gay to play the guy that's going to be talking to his girlfriends with an armload of shopping bags yeah. about getting many petties is a little frustrating. That's a lot. That a gay casting director said that about me, knowing that I'm openly gay. So there's certainly those things, but I, you know, we're seeing a lot more of it. Funny enough, I'm this this season of American Horror Story is so exciting to me. You know, for whatever people say about 
the stories and structures and plots of what Ryan Murphy does. There are so many openly gay people on this season of American Horror Story. It is thrilling to see. When you have yeah. Billy Eichner and Colton Haynes and Sarah Paulson, and you have Chaz Bono, who's trans, and just and Dot Marie Jones, that was in, yeah. like, the, you know, there are great, interesting characters being given to openly gay uh, performers. And so I think that trend, the more we see of that, the more it's it becomes less and less of a thing. I, I, I think that, you know, I'm a weird, I'm a weird type. You know, I'm tall, I'm awkwardly skinny. You know, some the the creativity of casting at times, they often just want you to be, you walk in the room and be what the character is. Right. Uh, that happens less in theater, so you hear theater actors, I think, complain about it more. And someone once described me as uh, too pretty to play the other guy, but not pretty enough to be the hot guy, which I took as a compliment. Yeah, you know, you, that's a good thing. I was thing. like, all I heard was you said I'm I'd, pretty. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I mean, who knows? Uh, and I Sometimes I hang on to the fact that someone said in my early 20s, they said, I think you'll do really well in your 40s. Yeah, that's So okay. we'll look forward to that. There you go. So at what point are you too old to have potential? I know. To have potential? I interviewed Allison Janney, and she said oh that she looked, like, she, she looked like... She was playing 40-year-old women from the time she was in high school. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, you know, and she's a genius with 17 Emmys. There you go. Um, so, you know, who knows? At some point, it'd be great to balance producing my own work with doing work for other people. But until then, I'll just keep making my own. I am hoping that maybe this role will help me get a something. There you go. Well, you deserve to. Now, when you and Del finish this release... Yes. Is there a spa day planned? What what happens at the end of this marathon? The Well, unfortunately, now that like the big wide release haven't happened... Uh, now it's lots of like cleanup, like making sure people pay you and then doing yeah. all the accounting and then working on checks to my investors and cleaning up the books yeah. is the exciting project for the month of November. Do you know QuickBooks? Um, yes. I use QuickBooks online. I learned it this year. I, yes. I love it. Yes. I but know. I just take all the bank statements and everything and then I do it all at once. Like I did, I'm not one of those people that I can do it as we go. There yeah. hasn't been time. So now I just have stacks and stacks of like, here's what's been paid and awkward spreadsheets that are like, here's where we spent money that I have to clean up. Yeah. Um, that he, Dell has also uh, written a great new series also set in a Southern town, but not sort of related uh, that I love, that he loves, that we've got a great big TV uh, producer interested in, that hopefully we, the ink is going on the contracts for him to pitch that. Oh, I love Hopefully it. that will be the thing for next year. And same thing. There's a, there's a small, there's a supporting part in it. You know, I don't have to be a series regular. There's a supporting part I can play right. uh, while we produce this show together. And hopefully that's the big thing for next year. But wow. in between, like... I hope like, so. Like, hey girl, give me a call. I'm right. free. I will read for anything. Right. I, I don't have, there's no snobbery here. Right. I will come to your short film. Did you guys get paid good for People's Couch? No. You got, you, did, you did get paid though. $3 and a roll of duct tape. It's, it's always my like, Is your, your, did it increase as the show went on or did it stay no. at one point? No. And I don't know how far, I, like the 700 page contracts that you have to sign for reality television yeah. are fascinating. Yeah. Because I don't know, like, I don't know if I can even say this, but who cares? There's parts of it that basically say, because this is, like, everywhere, that, that you acknowledge that they can basically lie about you. Like, right. across all the networks. That they're like, we can do whatever we want with, like, what we get from you. Which yeah. is, you know, uh, what you accept. I'm like, fine, I'm going to sit and be snarky on a sofa, so there's not much you can do with that. Right. Uh, but no, it was definitely the theory and the pitch of being paid an exposure. Yeah. So hopefully, somebody's doing an indie film that they're like, well, you were on a reality show and maybe you were a little bit of a gay stereotype, but but maybe that exposure level will make you a good reason to put in this movie. And apparently, I'm somewhat talented as an actor. You are somewhat talented. You're very good. Do you have a bunch of social media followers? Uh, I mean, like, a bunch is relative when you know people that have millions and millions. Yeah. Of the three of us, I have the least, if you want to quantify it that way. 
Um, Are you competitive that way? You no, Scott and Blake? no, no. I'm yeah. just being silly because we joke about it. Yeah. Uh, because like Scott's super political and super, you know, super intense, and Blake has tons and tons of those like Full House fans, and he just, you know, he's literally he does social media when he's in the mood. Right. Scott does it because he loves talking to people about politics and stuff, and I'm somewhere in the middle. It's right. like 50% work because you go into casting and producers meetings and they ask how many followers, how many do, followers you do you have. And yeah. it matters. We have people say, you know, for the distribution of this movie, our distributor said, give us the sum total of the social media followings of everyone in your movie combined because when we give it to platforms, they ask for that information now. So love it or hate it, if you're an entertainer oh, and you're not doing brick. it, you know, you, and everybody can do it the way that makes yeah. you happy. I try for it to represent... You know, very close to me. There's some things I don't talk about to keep to right. myself, but it is a good reflection, I think, of who I am when I sit down with you. Right. Because I always find it weird when somebody's super brash or super interesting and then shy in person. I'm always surprised because mine really just is like something I would say to you. Yeah. I say, if you wouldn't scream it in a stadium to 50,000 people, maybe don't say it. Yeah. Online. That's a good rule of thumb. Right. When you moved to Singapore, did you want to or were you like, oh, oh no, the summer before we moved to Singapore, I. Like, used it to get everything and anything out of my parents. You made me halfway around the world. You ruined my life. Yeah. I literally wrote a, a letter to my parents telling them that I felt like God was telling me that I should stay in Houston and live with my best friend Kevin and finish high school there. That the Lord was telling me that I right. should do that. And it didn't fly. It did not for some reason. They, they, would, they, would, they took you anyway. And how long were you there where you were like, I'm really glad it worked out this way? Uh, it, like, I definitely took the approach of like, okay, I'm here, so let's make this, let's so make let's make this work. I landed and we're off and running. I think for my middle brother, it was a, took a little longer because he was also starting high school, so two big things. Yeah. And then my youngest brother was in middle school, and so he was like, sure, whatever. Like, I'm going to play sports, you know, and do things wherever we are, so it's fine. I was in Singapore for a day once when I was working on cruise ships, and I bought a watch off the black market. Yes. And I went and got a Singapore sling. Yes, at, at the Raffles, Raffles Hotel. Yes, throw your peanuts on the ground like you're supposed to. I don't know. I don't remember that part. But um, what was what was what did you do for fun in Singapore? I mean, it was the same thing that you know that high, high school. school kids do anywhere. No, nobody had cars because they're extremely expensive to have on the island, and even wealthy right. families tend to have one. And so you yeah. take cabs everywhere. The legal drinking age was 18, so second semester seniors were able to drink. So right. we definitely walked that line of like we could actually go to clubs. Uh, and and drink in high school, which was great because then when I got to college, there was no like, oh my god, this is so exciting. I'm away from right. home. I mean, I hid it from my parents. We were good Southern Baptists, exactly. And so I was like always fine by the time I went home. But I mean, the, the same stuff, you know, kids get up to anywhere except you're doing it like the kid who's the whose dad is the president of Coca Cola bottling Asia. You know, that's huge. I like, bet they had a nice kids house. Like money. Yeah. Are you friends with any of your Singapore people? I am. We are, yeah, we're, it's interesting because we have reunions and things here in the U.S. They vote on a city every five years when it happens um, because, like, nobody lives in Singapore. Everybody was uh, moving around. But I do. I still, like, social media, Facebook, keep up with, you know, people. And they went off, like, it's definitely a high-end prep school. We had six National Merit finalists in my high school graduating class. I'm 185. Um, and so they went off to like work, be like huge VPs at Google's and things. So I love that. I mean, I'm definitely never going to be the most wealthy, successful person at a reunion. Right. But as we get further and further along, like at least I still look great. And you're show busy. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. You're on television. I mean. That counts for everything. I mean, it does if you don't, if you're a terrible person. (laughs) (laughs) And so many people are. They really are. It's funny. You know, I love the people's couch. It was super fun and we met great people. But, like, all I want to do is tell great stories. Yeah. Like, I would just like to act in things that I, like, that are exciting, that I love what they're about. Yeah. That's my, 
like serious, sincere. That's what you want. Response. And but as a result, I'm willing to do any of the other things that you have to do along the way. Right. Like, to to do that. If it and means having to them. tweet and to Instagram thirsty yeah. photos of my awkwardly skinny naked body, right. I will do those things. How naked do you go on Instagram? Sorry, like bear, like I'm a speedo boy. Yeah, because I grew up the kind of thin that makes strangers feel comfortable co- talking about it. Right, like people at grocery stores. Like, do you eat enough? Like, I'm that kind of skinny, and still, as an adolescent, it was traumatizing. As an adult, it is great. Like, it's yeah. definitely great now. But do you remember me, when it shifted? Uh, it was honestly, it wasn't until I moved to LA, yeah. and even after that, it was sort of my first year being out here. You know, there's there, going to gay bars in LA. There is a thing of like, it's freeing to walk into a bar and know you're never going to be the most attractive person there. You know, like literally at the hottest person at everyone's high school moved to New York or LA. Right. I found that freeing to like let go of that. Be like, I, that is not something I strive for, right. aspire to. If you're into skinny guys, I'm a great, I'm a great possibility. But like on the like super Instagram gay hot scale, I'm like not going to rank. Letting go of that was so freeing and deciding and like putting down the burden of caring. Right. Like if you're interested in me, great. If you're not, that is okay too. And doing what I want, I like, I love Speedos and like I've always worn them at the beach. And so now my Instagram gets flooded with them in the summertime and some people roll their eyes and some people don't. I'm like, it took me a long time to get comfortable with what I see in the mirror. Right. And if you don't like it, like don't follow me. Right. But also like everyone should be okay with their naked butt. You know what I mean? Like, Everybody should post it. Like, everybody thirst stalks the super hot guys. Well, the rest of us should also be fine with putting that out there, too. Exactly. What Define thirst stalk. Well, you know, where you, like, follow somebody that you don't know that's also, like, way hotter than you could ever have sex with, probably. Right. But, like, to look at their photos. Right. And they post, like, perfectly chiseled, perfectly Yeah, crafted. and you're like, ugh, they're so disgusting. I want to look at their whole entire yes. feed. Yes, yeah. The, like, weird self-hatred that leads... Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a fucked up... Uh, and, like, I say that, like, and you thing. hope they're stupid so that yeah. the universe is balanced. Sure. You know, it's like those of us that are smart can say, uh, well, at least I have yeah. and you don't. Like, really smart, like, stupidly attractive and talented people, that, like, I still... They need to... I, I have to take a deep breath sometimes and be yeah. like, good for you. Yeah. Because, like, that's not my journey. I hope Matt but, Bomer has hemorrhoids like, right? that will not clear up <laughs> for nothing. The, Every performance we've seen, Magic Mike, yep. he was itching like he a motherfucker. went to the high school down the street for me in Houston. Oh, yeah. Like, I went cool. to Klein Oak High School, and he went to Klein High School, like, yeah. down the street. Did you know of him? I did not at the yeah. time, but yeah. my, people I went to church with that went yeah. to that school, like, a friend of ours was in his yeah. wedding. That's cool. Um, and I was like, yeah, that would have been hard for me. Um, you and Dell both Southern Baptists. Yes. Right? Who who had more trauma around that, or was it very similar, or were they totally different experiences, or is it what kind I of? I mean, I you guys? I think I mean definitely just having had that experience, uh, it is definitely what bonded us. I mean, my draw to Southern Baptist sissies, which is how I met him, and like me being in Southern Baptist sissies on stage in Dallas. I was actually shaking before the first performance of that play with the Uptown Players, which is funny because it's the same night Dell came to see it. Like, my scariest, bravest risk as an actor, telling a story that was still, that I was still working through the trauma of and a little bit worried about my parents coming to see it, is also the reason that I met him, which is why I moved to L.A. Yeah. Um, and it was the bond of that experience, of, of being, you know, I always wanted to be the, the good little Christian boy. Like, my prayer was, fix this. Like, 
uh, oh. take this away. Yeah. But, like, through college, sobbing in a car, like, on the side of the road, you know, at 19 years old, like, in the steering wheel, like, I, if, the, if this is not supposed to be, take it away. Like, I, you know, what do I need? What am I going to do? Yeah. Which is so much what that character goes through in that play. How did you initially meet Dale? Were you, you brought to him through that play? Yes. We did one of the first productions of Sissies. The play wasn't fully published yet, yeah. so they got his permission. So he flew in to see the opening night. So he was there at that play. Was, and this was in... In Houston, Dallas. In Dallas. And a so, community production, a college production? Yeah, a regional theater yeah. production um, with this gay theater company. And so afterwards, you know, we, we all talked to him that night. He yeah. really liked my performance. And so I wrote him an email saying, thank you. You know, we appreciated you being here. And he was like, what are you doing in Dallas? Why are you there? I was like, well, I'm saving money to move to New York or L.A. You know, I, I started in musical theater. Um, I don't dance well enough to be a Broadway chorus voice, and I look 17, so moving to New York doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, and I need to save money so that I can live in a city when I get there. It's like, well, if you can get yourself to L.A., I'm reviving Southern Baptist Sissies with Leslie Jordan, um, and you can split that role. Because at that point, I actually played Benny, the drag queen character that okay. Willem played in the movie. Right. He said it's a very hard role to cast, because I either get drag queens that can't act or actors that can't pull off the drag. And the actor that I use here in L.A. can only do half the show. So you can split the role with him if you can get out here. So I was like, this is the sign I was waiting for. Yeah. Um, and even my mother was like, this seems meant to be. You know, my good Southern Baptist parents said, go out to L.A. to keep doing that drag queen role. I love it. Um, and so I packed all my stuff in my high school cheerleader car and arrived here the day before Thanksgiving. You were a high school cheerleader? No, but I drove a Saturn with a half door. And my brother was like, that's a high school cheerleader car. What's a half door? Like, it had the little, like, ha- the one that only oh, opens yeah. on the driver's side. That's cute. Then it opens the wrong way, so only on the driver's side. Yeah. Yeah. When was your coming out? It was a three-year process, probably, right. from right after college. Uh, until moving to L.A. Okay. Um, because I came out to my best friend in college, literally watching an episode of Will and Grace, uh, which is so nostalgic. Which episode? Do you remember? I, no, I don't remember the episode, but yeah. I, like, remember how we were sitting on the sofa, and I don't remember what they had just done that made me... She was like, oh my gosh, we're them. And I, like, took a deep breath and was like, and we have more in common with them than you think. Was oh how I came gosh. out to her. And what did she say? And she, I love you, and, you know, she, yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. She got it right away, what you were Yeah, to. but then I didn't tell, but then I didn't tell anybody else until uh, after college. Because I, I did theater in the summer and had a weird thing where some of the gay men just assumed that I was. Right. And I was super resistant because I was like... You don't know me. A, a little bit. I had that in college. There was, like, people that were ahead of me that were kind of, like, seeing through it. But yeah. I really didn't own it then and also it didn't feel like i was living a lie i, I was kind of late I, yeah and i wasn't it. sure yeah i mean i like yes but also i was still like working you know working through it like i never had sex with a girl because i was certain i was going to get through this thing yeah and then still be a virgin when i get married like yeah. i was going to be the best little christian in the world right and so i and also i was resentful intellectually of like the stereotyping that goes with that right now that was really an excuse to not tell them but it's funny because now I do, you know, I don't love the thing of like being like, oh, he's obvious. Like, because I think that discourages also like little straight boys who might not be stereotypically masculine. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like when we jump to that, to, to force that on behaviors, uh, I think we limit like good little straight, you know, a little straight kid that likes to sew or garden or ballet, you know. Yeah. That like, it doesn't have to inherently go. Right. People should be able to be who they are. Um, but, uh, so I, th- I was doing musical theater in the summer and then back to, to Southern Baptist Baylor during the school year. So the summer after Baylor, I moved to New York to study with the Atlantic Theater Company, basically to find out if I was actually talented. Right. Because I was terrible in college for a very long time. There was a day in a performance where suddenly acting clicked for me. What was the show? 
A friend of mine directed a one act called Raft of the Medusa, and I just remember, because I, I definitely over-intellectualize everything. Like, in, at all, still, to this day. Well, you, I'm sure that's hard to imagine. Way. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, but so I spent a long time, like, thinking about, like, what does it mean, and acting, and, like, how do you get into the character? And so I just got all of my question answered, and there was a day with that combined with the technique of, like, paying attention and building the character and letting it all go. I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. To the point where the chair of our department and one of my closest professors and a number of my friends were like, what happened? Because that was so different. And I was like, I get it now. Yeah, something like Like, it makes sense. That's so cool. I'll do all of the work and then put the work down to to be in the moment. Yeah. Um, And so, but so I moved to New York and spent that summer at the Atlantic Theater Company and I dated a girl... From the theater company. Yeah. But I talked to her about being interested in guys. She's like a New York girl, like super rich. Her dad was some famous movie director that now I don't remember. Yeah. She's like, that's fine. Maybe you're bi. And like the freedom to talk with her about it. And so to tell her that I went to like a gay bar on Saturday night. Yeah. And so then I like was hooking up with guys as well. Being in a place where I didn't know anybody gave me the freedom to like actually like see what I thought about it. Mm-hmm. And to sort of really acknowledge so like, it's not York. something that's going away. Yeah. So that when I moved back to Dallas after that summer, I came out to the theater people that I knew. I didn't come out to people from Baylor for a long time, and very few of them did I come out to directly. I sort of sheepishly and cowardly let social media and gossip take care of a lot of it, and then was just suddenly very obviously publicly gay yeah. in social media. What about with your family? Um, it was a, uh, they, that was an ongoing discussion. Yeah. You know, we talked about it for a while. We thought it was a phase we were going to get through. I always describe it this way. There was never any question that my family loved me unconditionally. Right. Theologically, it took us longer to get to where we are today. Right. Um, but it, so it was a much easier than many people's journey yeah. out of the church because there was no, you know, rejection, no screaming, no yelling. There was just, we don't think yeah. this is, you know, you know, we, th- this will make you happy. Yeah. Um, so it was, Yeah. An evolution. Uh, you used to have longer hair. Yes. Really sassy, sexy, fun hair. The gullet. What have you noticed since you cut your hair? Can I... A terrible, terrible... One terrible thing. I've been going to the same gym in West Hollywood for a decade. Right. Um, like, immediately after I cut my hair, there was a handful of guys that I have seen off and on. Now, granted, I go to the gym for my narcissism. Like, I... You know those endorphins you get at the end of a workout? Right. Mine are broken. I don't have those. So I only go for the narcissistic actor. Right. Like, if you're going to be this skinny, you can't be skinny with, like, a pooch. Like, that's right. the one thing. Like, okay. that's unacceptable. Because genetics and my metabolism take care of so much of it. So right. I do a little bit. But I'll take, like, six months off at a time. So, But on, off and on for ten years, I've seen many of these guys. And there were several that hit on me as if I were a brand new person. And I was like, this more traditionally masculine appearance that I have that was literally just the change in haircut has made you not realize that I'm a person you have yeah. seen every every like, other day for a really long Greg time. Jennifer getting a nose job and nobody realizing it's the same person. Yeah, and so there's a weird flattering element to it and a weird depressing thing that like, and granted, hey, it was a haircut that lots of people loved and right. lots of people hated. I've gotten a lot of this compliment while I've been on this very sort of wedding tour. You look so much better with this haircut. And my response is, that's not a compliment. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, don't worry, my self-esteem is fine. Right. But you could just say, I love this haircut, period. Yeah. It's like when someone says they look great for, no, whatever you say after yeah. four makes it an insult. That's yeah. not a compliment. Don't say someone looks great for their age. Just say yeah. they look great. That's right. Like, why? Um, but so there was a weird that I look somewhat more uh, stereotypically, traditionally mask for mask. Sure. There was like, 
I'm old enough now that it was mostly just sad. You know, yeah. that I was like, uh, and I don't know, it's probably ju- weird judge, reverse judgment on my part. Hey, if that's what you're into, that's what you're into. Yeah. But the sort of femme shaming and that sort of stuff that, uh, that can be a problem in our community at times. I was like, oh, but everything, cause literally everything else from the eyebrows down is the same. Yeah. So like, you're still, it's the, still the same body. Like yeah. it has not gotten any better. I've just been maintaining for a decade. Yeah. So that was an interesting Thing to observe. Yeah, to experience. Yeah. yeah. Which gym do you go to? 24 hour. Was there you go. Because it's cheap enough that when I don't go, I don't feel bad. That's the I key. can't go to like the super ritzy gay no, gyms. Because like if you don't go every day, you're spending so much money for every no. workout. And I am still what you would call life rich bank account poor as an artist. Yeah. I like life, life rich is better than not life rich. Absolutely. Okay, you picked some questions from the episode. Yes. How did you learn the facts of life? My parents bought me a book. Like, I was in elementary school, and it was a book with, like, drawings. Like, here's how a women's parts work. Here's how a men's parts work. Like, so clinical and adorable. But I was, like, I, like, had my birthday party at the house, and, like, I hid it, like, between my bed, because I was, like, what do we do with this? And, like, showed it to all of my friends. Like, they got me a book. Like, we didn't sit down and have, like, a talk-talk. That's something, though. That's more than a lot of parents do. Absolutely. And it was definitely, like, it was all right, but it was hilarious, because there's, like, fallopian tube drawings, and, like, you know, here's testicles, but, like, here's how all of the tubes work. That's cool. Were you interested in the book? Yeah. Okay. But also, like, I knew some, because, like, I had gone to the encyclopedias, like, before this already, so I was just amused by, like, that it was, like, a cartoon testes. Yeah. It's cute. What's the biggest lie you ever told in an interview or an audition? I did a production of a children's theater musical called Hans Brinker or the Silver Skates. It's based on the children's story about the, the kid on ice okay. skates with the dam. And it's like a, a, in a race yeah. on, in uh, the Netherlands. And they asked at the audition, now the entire show is going to be on rollerblades, like ice skates. And we have a moving turntable and the race is going to happen on rollerblades. Do you rollerblade? And I said, absolutely I do. And I definitely do not and had never been on a set of rollerblades. <laughs> and so I get cast in the show and my boyfriend at the time had rollerblades and I was like, you have to teach me how to do this in a week. And he was like, that is not going to go well. So by the first rehearsal, I could skate a straight line, yeah. but I couldn't stop or turn. And so the first two weeks of rehearsal, while I learned to rollerblade, because of a children's show, I was 23 and all these actual kids were in the show. To stop, I would just grab the closest child. And more than once, <laughs> me and a child just went crashing to the floor. <laughs> did they was... ever know that you were... Well, yes, they... that it was clearly yeah. apparent. And the director, I worked with her several more times after that and had once before. And she was like, you don't know. I was like, I will have it by the time we get there. Right. And it was like too late and we're too far into it. And I was like, well, just figure it out. You know, you and Olivia Newton-John. Yes. Okay. Have you ever written a fan letter or email? Okay. Uh, this is like embarrassing because I was so entirely too old for when this happened and the level of delusion this describes. I, Dawson's Creek, I was obsessed. Like Kevin Williamson. Right. That precocious teenagers that talk in language that are, that is that level of dialogue. Right. Was a lot like the kids I went to high school with in Singapore. Like right. they were the overachieving kids of super successful parents. So that thing people complained about, like teenagers don't talk like that. The yeah. kids at my school did. Right. So I was obsessed. And I became obsessed with the story of Katie Holmes getting discovered out of a casting tape out of Iowa. Right. And so I was like, she and I should be friends. But I wasn't, like, 15. I was, like, 19. And I wrote, like, this crazy long letter about how, like, I was from a small town, and I was an actor, and I was really talented, and I thought she was really smart, and I thought we should be friends. But I, like, went in, It was, like, a four-page letter. I didn't ever send it, which I feel like defends it a little bit, but I was definitely convinced that if Katie Holmes read this letter, she and I would be friends. 
She could do a lot worse. I what think she, and a, she did. I think sometimes celebrities have not the greatest people around them. Like, if she had been my friend, we would not have fallen down that Scientology wormhole. Yes, exactly. You I'm could have still her. waiting for Suri to grow up and yeah. write the book. Because, like, I feel like she'll write the book. Yeah, Suri knows. What's Suri knows? But, like, I at 19, like, that's way too old. It I shows you how so. sheltered my development... Because yeah. I was convinced... I was like, we, absolutely, we'd be friends. Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, I want to, like, braid your hair. But it was like, no, you're smart and yeah. down to earth and from a small town and we should be friends. Yeah. I did not mail it. I think you might have gotten what you wanted if you'd mailed it, but I don't know. What article of clothing or accessory have you gotten the most comments on? Um, I'm actually wearing a version of it right now. Yeah. Because of our radio show, my big response to Kim Davis and telling that story ad nauseum, I got exhausted talking about that right. terrible woman. You had to follow every twist and turn. Yes, of that adventure. Like right. a, and my, so my response to it was, bless their bigoted hearts, was always right. like the end of the segment. Right. And people loved it. And so I made t-shirts, like for me, through Teespring, that was like, I made one, and if you like it, you can order one. It's like a three-week campaign. And people loved it and yeah. ordered a bunch of them. And so I wore it on the people's couch and they ordered a bunch more. And I wear it all over the country and all the time I get people coming up. I love that shirt. I love like what it says. And in the South, like I wear it specifically into Southern airports and like yeah. Roanoke, Virginia and Knoxville, Tennessee. And I find the like loving allies and liberals all over the South because they're like, I love it. And then sometimes people are like confused and I'm like, mm, it's probably about you. Yeah. It's like, it's not super aggressive. It's sort of like loving, but you're still big. It's like, and also for me, it's laughing in the face of, yeah. you know, I, we definitely have to fight by, definitely dramatically fight a certain kind of bigotry, yeah. but I also think there's a lot of value in dismissing a certain kind of bigot by laughing at them. You take yeah. a lot of the power away uh, from that, and it's sort of my version of responding that way. Like, bless your heart. In the South, it either means you're stupid or fuck you. Are these shirts still available? Yeah, the campaign's always available. Yeah. Teespring.com backslash bigoted hearts new from extra small to 5XL. And when a couple of people it. order, it relaunches on its own. There you go, and you get a little money, right? Yes, and I get a couple of dollars. And what do you go spend it on? What, uh, where, do you, where does your t-shirt money go? Something no, special like, for you? No, it does, like, no, it's like, <laughs> like, it keeps the lights on. You know, like, I'm not paying myself very much to do this big tour. Right. Okay, whose job offers would you like to intercept and receive yourself? My Andrew Garfield definitely yes. sits in a place that I'm I like. Can see that. that. Like, if I were to sit in a meeting, it's like Andrew Garfield, Joseph Gordon Levitt, yeah. Ryan Gosling before he worked out for Crazy Stupid Love. Yeah. Like, his old body, right. not his new one. Like, right. the old roles. Yeah. Like, they're the sort of, you know, like tall and lanky, but a sort of thinking man's actor. Yeah. Like, that's the, the world I'd like to live in. I saw the Angels in America oh, with Andrew Garfield. Yes. I thought he was so good. Yes. I loved it. Okay. When was the first time you saw a dirty magazine or video? Uh, my best friend, Zach, growing up, we were on the swim team together in our subdivision in Candlelight Hills. That was the name of our subdivision. Okay. Uh, and the street that I grew up primarily on, wait for it, was named Flaming Candle. Okay. Like, my parents should have known. Yeah. Like, Two exactly. Streets Down was Flickering Candle, but no, right. we were Flaming. Yeah. Flaming Candle. Full on. Uh, and so, Zach, uh, so I would spend the night at his house a lot, and his bro he had a younger brother, my brother's good friend, and his dad, in the closet, had a three-foot stack of <gasps> Playboy magazines. So many. Yes. And so, he would, like, get them out, and, like, that was my first experience with, like, a nudie magazine. Yeah. But it also led to eventually one of our first experiences of, like, playing with ourselves beside each other. Right. But, like, not with each other, but, like, beside each yeah. other. So, side by side. Yeah. So, like, play, you know, Playboy got me there you go. in the direction of my first experience. Uh, and it was Playboys. Yes. Which were not yeah. They sold explicit. Playgirl at a gas station down the street, and this answer's one that I didn't put in there, because yeah. it was the 
only thing I ever stole was a Playgirl magazine. Right. From, like, when they were in those, like, special racks. Yeah. I, like, tucked it in the back of my shorts and, like, rode my bike home with it. And got away with it. Yeah. Because I got like, caught looking at a Playgirl once in a convenience store. I was mortified. Yeah. Yeah. No, these were, like, in Texas where it was, like, the black bags. Yeah. Like, you couldn't see anything but the title. You got it. Do you, you still remember the cover? Of the oh, images? yes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay. burned into my brain. Yeah, exactly. Describe your most unfortunate haircut. I mean, it goes back to the gay mullet, is yeah. the answer. Like, yeah. it was... I've only had, like, four haircuts in my whole life. I yeah. had the little boy, like, the good little boy haircut. Right. When I was in high school, my freshman year, a girl named Bianca told me I'd look great with, like, the butt cut. So I did that. Right. For, like, the entire rest of high school and into college. And then I, like, let it grow out all the way to Jesus hair. That then uh, Matt Levitt and Del Shores made me cut it for a play that I did several years ago here in L.A. that became the sort of gay mullet surfer right. thing. And then I shaved it all off for this movie. It's always... I have not changed my hair since I was 15 except for a role. Yeah. There you go. It's because you're serious. And lazy. What's the most trouble you ever gotten in school? When I... My freshman year in high school, uh, in choir... I got in the most trouble I've ever gotten into on a choir trip. It happens. Like, this is the amount of, like, good little boy that yeah, I was. you were such a good boy. And there's a weird thing you can do, and I hope children and adolescents are not still doing this. If you hang your head between your legs for a really long time... And then you stand up really quickly, and someone holds on either side of your larynx. It'll make you pass out for a second, because you made all the blood rush to your head. Yeah. And you'll kind of just, like, fall down. It's terrible for you. Right. But we did this over and over and over. So then we wanted to go show these girls that were also in the choir that we were doing this. And so we were standing outside of the girls' hotel room. We literally didn't even go inside. Like, we knew, like, we can't be in your rooms. We just stood yeah. in the hallway. But it was after curfew. And so the five of us got reported, and we got after-school suspension, and it was the most, like, credibility that I've ever gotten in. In fact, everyone thought it was so funny that I, like, the straight-A student, like, good little boy, I was a Boy Scout for a decade, like, right. perfect child, uh, got after-school suspension, or uh, suspension for the whole day, that the choir, during our choir period, like, our choir director marched them all out to walk past us, like, eating our lunch in the cafeteria, because it was, like, the funniest thing they'd ever seen. Right. That he had to report They us. had to rub it in and your face. And we got suspension yeah. for, like, being out of our rooms after curfew on a choir trip. Did you feel like a badass, kind of? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I was. You're edgy. Yeah. What's your go-to karaoke song? Poor Unfortunate Souls from The Little Mermaid. Oh, really? You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, Because here's the thing. You know, I I sing okay. Like, I sing like Diet Josh Groban. Yeah. And particularly LA karaoke, people treat it like a sport. Like, people right. take it way too seriously. Yeah. And I feel about karaoke and drag the same way. You either need to be fucking amazing or terrible and fun. Yeah. Like, it's the mediocre people in the middle that ruin it, where you're like, now I gotta sit for 11 minutes yeah. while you sing November Rain yeah. or something. Yeah. And so, everybody here, so many people can sing, and it's like, they're still doing American Idol season auditions, yeah. you know? Right. But they try to seem like they're not trying, yeah. but then they're, like, really trying, and, they're, and you're like, you're good, but not good enough for, like, how much you're pretending like you're not yeah. good. And so anytime that happens for too many people to roll, I get up and sing Poor Enforcement Souls. And just sing it. It's like a palate like, cleanser. So seriously. Yeah. Like so seriously. Yeah. And people definitely look at me, like for like 45 seconds in a douchey bar like the Brass Monkey. Right. They're like, and then like halfway through, they like come around because I'm like, Aah. And And they just drags everybody And in. like, I mean, you kind of have to get on board with it. You can't not. Right. It's Disney. Um, Emerson... This has been delightful. Thank you. It is truly my pleasure. You are wonderful. Thank you. I want to ask you one more question, but yes. before I do that, tell everyone the the movie is out now on VOD and 
yes. OCD. The spiel, and... A Very Sort of Wedding, is widely available. Blu-ray and DVD, uh, get them from Amazon for the entire first 24 hours of the release. We've, we've been number one in LGBT for eight weeks since Damn the right. pre-order happened. Number one in romance for the first 24 hours. In comedy, we climbed from 40th to 22nd to 7, 8, 4, 3. We are number two behind Girls Trip. Oh shit, like, that's gonna be tough. Well, we're not gonna pass that, but like, yeah. we're right behind Girls Trip. That's good. Our, like, little indie film. That's and so good. And in overall, the entire film ranking, we jumped from 288 to 83 to 56 to 44 to 31 to we were at 17 this morning from literally every movie and TV show they sell on Amazon. That's amazing. Uh, you must be so proud. Yes. And so also on iTunes, it is on streaming and download on Vimeo and Fandango, literally anywhere that you can stream uh, for 24-hour purchase or download. Available and then cable video on demand on Spectrum, DirecTV, Dish, literally everywhere. Go to our website, a very wedding.com, and there's a giant list of everywhere you can watch it. I love it. It's so crazy all the places you've been with it. Yes. Um, a, you should teach a boot camp class on how to do what you do with this uh, film. Yes. It, it sounds like you know uh, all, all the tricks. Uh, last question. When you look back on this whole whirlwind experience and you think, oh my God, that was so great, what are the moments that you're going to remember? Of pure joy. Um, standing in the in, in the shoot while we shot the wedding with the entire principal cast, like 18 people and Wolfie Goldberg, was a really special moment. It was the largest uh, portion of the Sorted family. Um, the moment that we finished shooting in Dallas where we knew we had the entire movie standing outside of Mitchell Gold, Bob Williams. It was in the can. It's a triumph and a release. And then, and then standing in Palm Springs when we did the world premiere in the town that made Sorted Lives a hit 17 years ago. And we got to the end and like that raucous applause with 23 of the actors there uh, for the Q&A was really special. And then for me personally, um, I, we screened this movie in Waco, Texas where I went to Baylor where I was not out. And Dell and I got up at 4.30 in the morning to be on the Waco Morning News at 5.45 and 6.15 and sitting on the Waco News and saying the words, as an openly gay man, I was born in Waco, went to college there, was really special to be in Waco and sort of feel how far I've come from that 19-year-old kid that cried to God to take it away, to be telling a story about marriage equality as a proud gay man. It, It... you know, we often look forward about how much further we want to go in our journey, yeah. and it was definitely a moment to look back and be really proud of how far I have come. I love it. I, I always say last question is not the last question. When you were so tormented about it and wanting it to be taken away, when did that sort of abate? And you was it a gradual thing, or was there something that happened that sort of where you were able to let yourself off the hook a little bit? Uh, it was it was a, a, a gradual and not you know it, it was it was something I so truly believed you know my questions about faith really came down to more about I don't think people who don't accept Jesus should go to hell like I don't think punishing people for all eternity is a good solution right um, that was my my first problem and then so but I really thought there's just I just don't understand yet I really believed in the concept of faith and you know that I will get to the answer that right. this is a trial just that I need to get yet. through yeah. you know believe enough pray harder get there and when I got to the point where I was having the feelings of like I'd rather just die and ask my questions to God and like understand why I couldn't get through this you know I I, I not not extremely suicidal but definitely leaning in the direction of like it would be easier if this was just over right I can't keep doing this thinking well I want to I want to make the world a better place is what I want to do with my art and so getting to the point of thinking it would be easier if I just wasn't here those two things were in such conflict that I did make the decision if I have to give up one I think I would like to make the world a better place you know, rather than not be in it. Right. And so it wasn't like, oh, and I'm done, and yay, it was sunshine and rainbows. But it, that sort of started the journey 
of learning to say, you know, oh, this is who I am, and meeting gay men, and going, oh, there, because up to that point, I, there, there wasn't a good way to be gay. Yeah. You know, it was only, like, it's just all terrible. Right. And meeting people and going, oh, you can be happy, and, like, oh, that, you know, expanding my own horizons, and seeing that you can live life in different ways. So, Singapore and Baylor and New York, you know, it was a long process of letting go, of thinking that there was one perfect life plan, you know, to be lived. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Everybody watch A Very Sorted Wedding. It's yes. really good. It's really good. It's really satisfying if you're a fan of the old one. And it's got new surprises if you if you just want to uh, sort of be surprised. And if, I'm naked. So that's you're a naked. plus or a minus. There you go. How'd you feel about your new scene? Well, I at least knew in that one moment that people yeah. would be looking at me and not Leslie Jordan. Right. There's one moment at least. Oh, come on. You did a great job. All right. This is super fun. Yay. Bye. Bye. A big thank you again to Emerson Collins. Check out A Very Sorted Wedding. It's delightful. Okay, so this happened. On Sunday night, as you probably all know, Anthony Rapp came forward with a story about how Kevin Spacey made an inappropriate sexual pass on him back in the day, in the in the 90s, I think, or when Anthony was 14 and Kevin was in his mid-20s. Um, and... I had always known since the 90s that this story happened because Anthony had told me. And so whenever I would see Kevin Spacey in a movie, I would think of this. I would think of that story that Anthony told me about how he got drunk and, and tried to seduce him or whatever. And But I had forgotten that the context of Anthony telling me was in an article that we did together for Advocate.com. I thought I, he might have just told me socially. So um, when that came out, and it was mentioned in BuzzFeed, and the link is there to the whole article, I was like, oh, yeah, this was on the record. It was um, Anthony and I had both put out CDs of music, and the advocate was nice enough to let us do a piece where we talk about that together, kind of to promote our music. And it wasn't like me interviewing him. It was meant to be a dialogue between the two of us. And the at one point, I talked to Anthony about how being out affects his acting. If it's a positive thing, if it frees you up and you're not, you're not worried about something else, so you're able to do your best work. And he said, yes, that's, that's definitely the case sometimes. But he also pointed out that sometimes the tension of the secret or whatever might, might also help to make somebody compelling on screen, interesting, mysterious, whatever. And I said, that reminds me of Kevin Spacey in American Beauty. And then Anthony said, I can't, it's hard for me to judge that because uh, he, I'm so mad at him. And then he told the story. Um, basically, that was how it went in the piece. I don't know if I got the words exactly right. Um, and so when the story was turned in, that story was included, but the name Kevin Spacey in the movie was left out. So you didn't know who we were talking about. It's just a big actor. Um, and I forgot that that was even part of the story. So, um, I've heard from Anthony s since the story went, went up and I emailed him to say that I applauded his courage and I support him hundred percent. And if there's anything he needs from me, uh, because of that story or whatever, um, I'm here. And, um, he actually said that having that on the record and somewhere online that people could go back to that helped him in terms of going forward with, with the story on BuzzFeed. Okay, so that's all of that. And then the advocate reached out to me because they wanted 
to do a follow-up story about the story that ran an advocate, about our story together. And so I did a little interview with them yesterday, and I was getting my car fixed, so I was in a coffee shop waiting, and I just don't feel like I was very articulate, and I tried to... Some of the points that I made was that I probably... I think I edited together the interview and turned it into The Advocate. Um, And I know I probably didn't include the name and the movie. I wouldn't have thought for a million years that they would print that as is. Nor did I think Anthony want to go there or whatever. But to do it as kind of a blind item uh, was something that they might do. And so I bet that I, I... I'm sure I didn't turn it in with Kevin Spacey's name in it. And I don't remember ever having a conversation with The Advocate about should we run this or whatever? I'd forgotten that it was even part of the story. And back then, an online article was like, was you wanted to be in the magazine. If they're like, oh, well, we'll do something online, you're like, all right, you know, fine. It was like posting something at your work bulletin board or whatever, because people weren't linking and people weren't on social media yet. So it didn't feel like a bombshell. It felt like a provocative blind item um, that sort of challenged some of the hypocrisy out there without naming any names. And if somebody read it and wanted to ask Anthony about it, or me, um, I could have said, yeah, this is who it was or whatever. Um, but I don't remember anyone commenting on that ever. In other words, I don't think anyone ever cared about that article. We're trying to, you know, promote our CDs, whatever. So anyway, I, I answered the advocates' questions about it. And, you know, and there was a, a bit of questioning about what do you think the responsibility is of the press and all of this. And I answered as best I could. I wasn't very articulate. And then when I hung up, I just felt really shitty. I had this pit in my stomach and this feeling that, a feeling of shame that I had, I don't know, done something or just feeling gross, but guilt, but like bad about myself, not necessarily, I don't know, it's a feeling of shame is the best way that I know how to put it. And so I I called the advocate back and I just wanted to make that point to them that I, I, I wasn't sure what conclusions to draw from it, but just that it felt shitty. And that, um, and I sort of made the point that if I can feel bad talking about a story from 16 years ago, imagine how bad somebody could be made to feel if it happened to them and they had to carry it with them for years and years and years and years. That was the, the point I was trying to make that this, this kind of harassment or assault, the, the the upset around it is insidious, and it and it's you know I I didn't want to I didn't want to be like what was me I just wanted to point out that I felt ashamed or bad about something, and I didn't do anything wrong, and that that's what I wanted to point out. So. I'm nervous about when the piece comes out, how I'll come off or what I'll say, how, because I couldn't make a look, I couldn't string two sentences together, but, um, I wanted to share that. I talk a bit about this on the Patreon episode as well, if you happen to go check that out, but that was before I'd done the interview with the advocate. So I just wanted to, to, um, to say that. So I'm sure the piece will come out soon in the advocate. I hope, I hope it doesn't make me feel shitty. Or anyone should feel shitty, you know. So um, I really admire Anthony for his courage. And uh, this is a very interesting few months for horrible men who do horrible things. 
Um, so there's that. All right, this has been a really long episode, but it's full of stuff, full of lots of stuff. So thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.